Welcome to the NARPM Podcast, where we bring you the most in-depth look into the property management industry. We discuss hot topics with property managers, vendors, and those that support the property management industry. The National Association of Residential Property Managers is the recognized leader in property management. Our host is Pete Newbig, co-founder of Empire Industries Property Management and co-founder and CEO of VPM Solutions, where property management meets global talent. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the host and are not necessarily those of NARPM. Now, here's your host, Pete Newbig. Welcome to the NARP Room Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. However you may be listening, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or through any of the podcast platforms, thank you for being here. I'm your host, Pete Newbig. Today, we'll be talking to Doug Bryan, CEO of Mind Management. We'll discuss Doug's new book, The Big Long. We'll ask Doug what he thinks the state of the industry and how it affects small businesses. What is Mind doing to grow and the role institutional investors are playing with the real estate market? Doug is a former Super Bowl winning NFL place kicker. He got his start in real estate following the collapse of the housing market in early 2009 when he and Colin Wheel began buying single family homes to renovate and rent out. Together, they were able to scale up their company in an industry that had been the domain of smaller players, building a $3 billion portfolio with over 17,000 single family rental homes that attracted institutional investors and competition from private equity firms. With the success of Waypoint Homes, Wheel and Brian defied critics to put the single-family residential sector on the map as a profitable and scalable financial asset. Doug is currently CEO of Mind Property Management. And we're going to get to Doug here in a second. First, our hot topic. So the hot topic today is, I've been getting this asked a lot lately, is how do you train your team members, especially your virtual team members, people that are working for you, you know, remotely? And so I learned how to do this when I had my empire days and some stuff I, I learned and some stuff I learned too late and I've since figured it out. And so here's how we do and here's some of the best practices that, that I've learned how to do. So the first thing is when you're in, when you're training somebody, the first thing you want to do is you want to do it over Zoom. Even if they're in the office, I still recommend over Zoom. And here's the reason why, because you want to record that session. So it's important to record the session. Make the training less than two hours. So what happens is right around two hours or a little bit before two hours, people start, they, they can't retain stuff as much. So try to keep your training less than two hours. My mistake at Empire early on was I had like three hour training sessions and doing them every day. And so if you keep it to down to two hours and, they, and you video the training, the next thing is that they take that training, that video back, they rewatch it and they start building the process manual. So that's the main thing is instead of you building a process manual, you have them build the process manual. And the reason why is because they're building it, they retain it much better than if they were just trying to read your process manual. They also know how to navigate that manual better than the one that you built. And I know like, but Pete, I spend all this time building this manual. I get it. I had a hundred page maintenance manual that I try to get my team to learn. They couldn't learn anything. As soon as I had them start building their stuff, they remembered everything. The next piece of it is you need to train every day if you can. So have the training every day. So it's important to spend a lot of time with your new hires first. And then after they're trained up, then you have a weekly meeting with them. And that's part of the management and what, and reviewing the key performance indicators and all that good stuff. Now, when you train every day, so on Monday, let's say they start on Monday and you do that hour and a half training or two hour training, and you start from the beginning of the process and you go through the training. The next day, when you do the training, don't just do a recap of the day before, start from the beginning again. And what happens is, yes, you're going over the same thing, but that hour and a half training might only take an hour or 45 minutes. By the third, fourth or fifth day, that hour and a half training might only take 15 or, or 10 minutes. And I know this takes it a little bit longer, but what happens is people start retaining more. You have to hear, you ever, there's a, some science that says you have to hear something seven times before you actually get it. Now, what happened with us is as we were going through this and we kind of revamped it and going through this, a couple of things happened. The first thing was that the team started asking better questions 
because they started to learn, right? As they're, as they're getting their videos each day, building their process manuals and going through it, they're starting to understand it. So they start asking better questions by the, by the second week of training. The other thing is, I know it creates like a, a little bit lengthier process and the training might take longer, but the retention of the training is much greater. So less escalations occur or less challenges occur because you're doing this type of training. And so the third thing that happens is as you go through the training, every day you go through the training and you're going back to the first piece and they start asking better questions. What happens is as you're going through the training, you end up realizing that there's some holes. Maybe there's a policy that needed to be created that, you know, now that you're offloading this, you don't have the policy anywhere. Maybe you need a report. Maybe you need, you know, some fields, whatever it is that you need. You, you, as the trainer, the business owner, the leader, whatever you, whatever you are in your organization, you might have some action items and some to-do items. Because if you want them to do something a certain way, and this is the first time you're actually offloading it, you might realize like you were kind of figuring some, some of this stuff out and you didn't have a policy um, or a, a really great process. So it's going to make your process a lot better. And so those are the ways that we actually created our training throughout throughout empire days and some of the tips that i taught you today we didn't do for example i wish i would have recorded my video training because that becomes your training as people future people come on your team can train them and they can use those those videos to train the team and so you don't have to once once i spent the time and the effort to train my team I never had to retrain again because my team was able to retrain. And if you have these videos in the database, now they can, they can literally watch video one through video 14 or however many days you did your training, build their manual, and they'll be able to, to process and retain more without you having to redo it. So once I did my training at Empire, the one time for the first batch of team members, I never had to train them again because the team members were able to train and so that was off my plate, so to speak. So hopefully this helps you guys. We'll be right back. And then we're going to go ahead and interview my old boss, Doug Bryan. Create the best move-in experience for your resident or homeowner. Citizen Home Solutions is a utility concierge service designed to assist with services needing activation prior to moving into a new home. Our experienced team will help eliminate the stress of setting up services. No more calling a long list of service providers to get everything connected and ready for move-in day. Your client will value the white glove service provided on your behalf. True, Citizen Home Solutions assist with utilities, but more importantly, we create an experience that your client will appreciate and love. Our service is free and offers you a revenue share program. Want to know more? Visit pmcpartner.com. Scaling your business means juggling many moving parts, leaving you wondering how to manage it all. How can you keep your eye on growth and streamline your operations? At RentBridge, we've created the Property Management Operating System, an ecosystem for property management marketing and process automation, where you can view and take action on the most important aspects of your operations, from sales and new owner onboarding to leasing, collections, renewals, and more. By bringing operations and marketing under one platform, you can have end-to-end -end visibility of your owners, tenants, and vendors from the first moment they interact with you, allowing you to add more doors with less effort and scale a truly profitable property management business. To learn more, visit rentbridgegroup.com today. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining the Norpram Radio Podcast. As promised, I have... Doug Bryan. Doug is also was my boss's boss's boss over at Mind. So, Doug, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, good to uh, be on the show, Pete. Thanks. So, Doug, most people listening to this podcast know you through Mind, but I'd like to talk about Waypoint for a moment. In your book, The Big Long, you talk a lot about the Waypoint story. Can you give our listeners a quick version of how Waypoint started and then why you decide to take on investor funds and ultimately decide to take on private equity? Yeah, I mean, the book, is, it really is about Waypoint. You know, we get into the mind story a little bit. And I would imagine everybody knows Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, which really went into a lot of detail about like what caused the crash in the housing market. And, 
the way we ended up seeing what we were doing and others who started buying long. So the, the idea of going long means you're, you know, buying something and holding it was a really interesting story and kind of filled in the back half of what Michael Lewis had, had started. And, um, you know, for me, you know, I had just retired from the NFL in 2005. I had been um, doing real estate investing and had a goal to invest, like, like to buy a, a, um, a new property every, every year. I wanted to make sure that I had something to show for my uh, career in the NFL. And so what I did pretty much immediately after I retired was start, was join a private equity firm that was buying larger apartment buildings. And I did that for a couple of years. We, you know, raised money and bought buildings and held them. And, you know, then the foreclosure crisis started to happen. And I started to like, think about, you know, why am I chasing these, I think at the time, you know, five cap apartment deals when the bank was giving away, you know, 10% cap rate deals. And I would say at that time, I kind of knew enough to be dangerous. Like I, I understood how to invest in real estate, but, you know, in those days, you know, call it 2008, 2009, most of the real estate quote unquote experts felt like there really isn't an opportunity here. It's, it's too hard to buy houses and manage them at scale. And, you know, again, I knew enough to, to be dangerous. I knew how to do it, but didn't know enough to like dissuade me from trying. And so my business partner and I, Colin, who's an, an engineer by background, so really brings that, that tech background, decided to partner and just first on our own, start buying houses, right? Like we looked at it as, hey, this could potentially be a good investment for us personally. And if, if that worked out, well, then maybe we could, you know, raise other funds and, and try to grow that. But, you know, we'll see. You got to start with your own with your own money and, and, and test it out. And so it was really the results of those early acquisitions. You know, we were able to buy for what we thought, renovate, get the rent. We even flipped a few houses just to, to see what, what they would actually sell for. Cause we had this hypothesis that we were able to buy them really cheap because most of them were in such disrepair. You couldn't get financing. Like no, no one who would live in the house could get financing. And a lot of those folks didn't have the capital to do the improvement. So, you know, if you spent a hundred thousand and then invested $20,000 to fix the house up, you know, you're all in for 120, but that house, you know, turned out it was worth 150, 160. And, you know, we hypothesized that, but then we actually sold some to like, see if we were right. Cause we felt like that was kind of central to the thesis. And so really it was those early success points that gave us the interest and the confidence to start raising other people's money. So OPM, other people's money. Now these were, you know, individuals and that's typically how people start when they're raising money. And, you know, so we raised funds and had fees and, you know, they were relatively small funds. It was like 7 million, then 14 million, then 21 million. And then they really started to, to grow. We started getting into institutional capital. And, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is it's really important to take, you know, steps along the way. And, you know, we didn't just go to raising institutional money. We took many steps in between to like really understand if we had a business that was scalable and could um, produce the returns that we that we thought. And so, you know, I think embedded in your question was, you know, why, why raise money? Like why, why would someone go raise institutional money? And I think anytime you're going to raise money from someone else, whether it's another um, high net worth individual, it's an institution, which could be like a private equity fund, or it could be a pension fund or a family office, or even, you know, take money from public market investors. I just think you have to be really clear about what you want to get out of that money. Because when you raise money from someone else, regardless of who it is, there's a cost. It comes with a tax. <laughs> you know, now you know you have put yourself out there as the fiduciary. There's a responsibility to report, to execute and you know, there's a cost, but if there's a good enough reason and you're clear on what the reasons are, 
then it can make, you know, it can make a lot of sense. And I, I think absolutely for us, like we saw a massive opportunity. There's no way our own money was going to even allow us to make even a small dent. We were going to have to scale it with other people's money. And, um, you know, that's because there was a really big, unique opportunity. And so I think for us, it made sense, but it, you know, it was work to go raise that money. In the book, you have some really good early stories about how you guys are driving around. I think it was Northern California. And then you looked at T-Line, I think it's called, whatever the- Bar. The barter. And you, you were literally picking houses along the barter. When I, so it was really fascinating. So uh, for those who don't know who Waypoint was or is, talk a little bit about like where, wh- like early on you had this vision, right? You're buying some houses, but you really weren't buying to hold and flip. Like you were really buying for this greater vision that you had. Talk a little bit about what Waypoint ended up becoming. Yeah. So, you know, in that day, call it, you know, in the, in the 2008, 2009, 2010, those, I mean, the market was really frozen and the bank's balance sheets and supply would just kept building and building. And that was causing prices to fall even farther. And, you know, there's an old saying, don't catch a falling knife or be careful. You're not catching a falling (laughs) knife. Like that's what everybody was saying. Like, yeah, the houses are cheap, but like how much cheaper are they going to get? And so really the only kind of capital that was really active in those days were flippers, right? Those that felt like they could get in and out fast enough that they could like make make a margin. And, you know, they were making pretty good money, 20, 30% margins on, on flipping. And it was a nice, it was a nice uh, high paying job flipping. Yeah. You could kind of create your own job. Now you had to pay taxes like ordinary. I mean, that, that those profits came across as like ordinary income. So to me, that was like a really, really unfavorable dynamic. And, you know, it kind of depends on, the capital paradigm you come from or you look through. And so the way that Colin and I looked at it was like, geez, I mean, if you can buy a house for X, invest Y and rent it for Z, and, and that comes out to be like, you know, an eight, 10% cap rate, and then you can put some um, debt on it and produce 10% plus cash on cash returns, like, why would you want to sell that? I mean, that's a much more tax efficient way to generate income. You can almost pay no tax on that. Plus the other way we looked at it was it's a lot of work to figure out what to buy and to renovate it. And so why not amortize all that work over a longer period of time and harvest more after tax income than just like do all the work and flip it really quick. If you feel like you can attract the capital that is okay, kind of sitting and waiting on um, appreciation to happen, but happy to have a 10% cash on cash return. So that was a big central thing. Like our whole um, pitch was, look, we don't have a crystal ball. Like prices might fall another 20%. Like, I don't know, but what I do know is this is the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a very strong economy. We are buying houses for like less than half of replacement cost, you know, one third of peak value right near public transportation. You can literally take BART for 45 minutes and you're in downtown San Francisco and like, you know, people like you can get a job. So it's like, it's just unimaginable that like we weren't going to get back to building houses in the Bay Area and no one's going to build a house unless they can sell it for more than replacement costs. And we were way below replacement costs. So our early models literally were just like, if we ever get back to replacement cost and then we earn 10% along the way, like that's a really attractive investment. And it kind of doesn't matter if it falls another 10 or 20%. So then you, you prove the model, you go out and get investors. And what was the vision for Waypoint early on? I mean, look, I'd love to sit here and say, like, we have this, you know, incredible vision. We're going to, you know, create a REIT one day. And it really <laughs> wasn't that specific. It was more like, Just kind of fell this into is it. a really big market. There's a big opportunity. 
technology technology is an integral part of being able to scale it like let's just keep putting one foot in front of the other taking baby steps making progress investing in technology raising capital figuring out how to execute at scale and just kind of see how far we can take it but without having any like limitations in mind like uh, we could only take it to you know this many homes or that many homes it was really like let's just see how how far we could take this but we just we felt like there was a, a big opportunity for sure for those of you listening doug is being super modest he ended up growing waypoint and taking it uh public uh him and his team and so but it was uh, a bunch of baby steps it, it really it really it really was uh, a I, lot I like that but at the end waypoint had how many homes we bought over 17,000 houses, 17,000 houses. Nice. So Doug, there seems to be more institutional money coming into the SFR space, especially for property managers, like management, like obviously mine was kind of on the forefront. There's a few other companies. Do you think, you know, as the CEO of mine, which is one of the bigger ones, do you think there's still room in the industry for the mom and pops? Or do you think they're getting pushed out with all this institutional money coming in? You know, it, it's just such a massive industry. I, I do not think that these things are mutually exclusive. I mean, the, the institutional money that is coming in, I mean, it's, it, there is a lot of it coming in. It's definitely putting downward pressure on cap rates, upward pressure on prices, making the market really competitive. But like, these institutions are not hiring, you know, local mom and pop property managers to manage for them. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, they, they want bigger managers that cover multiple markets that have more sophisticated reporting so that they don't have to, you know, hire teams of asset managers. But having said that, I mean, these institutional investors still aren't even 3% of the market. I mean, the vast majority of the market is, individual investors who own, you know, one to two properties. And, you know, the, those investors, you know, do look to mom and pop property managers and do want to invest in their own back backyards. And I mean, I would say that a central thesis of mind is that that's actually not the best way to invest. You know, when you invest in stocks, I mean, everybody talks about diversification and, you certainly don't need to live in Atlanta to buy Coca-Cola stock. You buy a whole basket of different stocks because, you know, no one's got a crystal ball. You want to build a diversified portfolio to have better risk-adjusted returns. And I think the same thing is true with real estate. It makes sense to, you know, pick good markets, but to have exposure to different markets. And so what Mind is trying to do is make it so that investors can work with one company across multiple markets that can help them with all of the services that you need, the buying, the financing, the insurance, and the management. And so to me, going back to your central question, Pete, I think it's just, it's such a big industry and in that like nothing that's happening is pushing anybody out. I would encourage, you know, smaller regional managers to embrace technology. I mean, just even taking this down to the simplest level, you know, the traditional property manager who manages a portfolio entirely, which, you know, some investors like that. They like to just talk to one person who does it all. But like, I've worked with a lot of property managers and I think, you know, there's a lot of talented people who get frustrated by kind of more of the manual rote work that needs to be done in the property management realm. And I think that there's just interesting ways to leverage technology such that a lot of those functions can be automated that, you know, the idea of specialization, like some people are really great at collecting rent. Some people, you know, are great at sales and good at leasing. And, you know, you, you know, what you're doing, Pete, with VPM, just like, you know, does a property manager really have to do everything? Do they want to do everything? Is it like, the highest and best use of their time. And, you know, my understanding of what you're doing is you're taking some functions of property management and offshoring it. And you help connect people that are trained and able to do it so that the local 
property manager can spend more time adding value to their clients. And so I just think, you know, embracing technology and figuring out kind of what's the next best way for us to do this is important for everybody to be thinking about. Where do you think the future of this industry is going in the next five, 15, 20 years? I mean, I think it's sort of falling, following in the coattails of MFR, multifamily residential. So large multifamily buildings. It's, it's really interesting to me because, you know, in the early 1980s, prior to the savings and loan crisis, got large garden style apartments, which were pretty commonplace at that, at that time, they were owned almost entirely by mom and pop investors. There was no institutional money that owned those. And really there was this perception that it was like just too operationally complex. You had these buildings and residents and repairs and maintenance and collecting money. And it's just like, this is not an institutional asset class. But what happened with the savings and loan crisis, it was sort of like a fire sale, similar to what we saw with the foreclosure crisis. Large institutions came in, started buying properties, you know, investing in technology and better services, a better experience. And now today, over 50% of multifamily buildings are owned by large institutions. And I think that is happening in single family. And if, if done properly, I think it can be a good thing because generally what's happening is I think companies and part of this is the advent of new technologies that can really create a better service. I think as an industry, we are creating more of a positive experience for renters. And this is a really important thing because there are more people renting today than there have been in a long time. Homeownership was like almost hitting 70% prior to the foreclosure crisis. And now it's down at 62 to 63%. And I actually think this is a healthy thing because, you know, the kind of building you live in is kind of a stage of life thing. Like people tend to live in apartments and then they have families and pets and stuff. And at some point you want to be in a house. And in the past, it was kind of like, okay, if I want to be in a house, I have to buy the house. Well, the truth is that may not make sense for everybody, right? Like, do you want to have all your eggs in one basket? If you choose to buy a house in a market, but then all of a sudden you have a job opportunity somewhere else, like that's very limiting. So I think what's great about what's happening, and I think this speaks to the future of the market, is that we're offering better services and better solutions for for renters and they are, you know, for residents, they can buy a house or they can rent a house and it's a good experience. And I continue to see more investment in technologies and services such that it's just a better experience for renters. And that's a very positive thing, I think. Do you see more regulation coming into this space as it grows in popularity? And do you see right now, I think it's like 75% of people self-manage their single family rentals. Do you see that flipping or changing in the next, uh, in the next, in the near future? Well, you know, it's interesting because I mean, actually the stat I had heard was about one third self, no, one third hire managers, two thirds self-manage, but it's interesting in Australia, that's totally flipped. Mm -hmm. And some believe that the reason for that is because there's so much regulation and it's so complicated. And so, you know, unfortunately I, I do see just more and more regulation coming. I mean, we kind of have a, a national emergency around affordable housing here in the U S and I think it's unfair that at times, you know, large institutional investors are kind of blamed for this problem. But the truth is, you know, there's a market, they rent properties for what the market will bear, they buy for what the market will bear. And the real problem, in my mind, is really nimbyism and local regulations that make it very hard to build enough supply. Like we're just as a country, and some cities are worse than others. I mean, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we're like the worst of the worst. Like, <laughs> it's just so hard and expensive to build. And there's just not enough supply. And so 
what I fear is that, you know, rent control and other kind of artificial instruments to try to fix this problem just make things so challenging. I mean, not to go off on a rant on, on rent control. I'm, I mean, I'm all for affordable housing, but I own a building in Berkeley. And I mean, let, you know, let's say market rates, 2,500 bucks. I have people living in there for like $1,200 and it has nothing to do with what they can afford. They just happen to have been living there for a long time. So we're not actually helping someone who needs help. It's like they might make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and they get to live for 1200 bucks just because they've lived there forever. So I just think there's more intelligent ways to, to solve the problem. And yes, unfortunately, with that will probably come more legislation and more complexity and you know, more work for those that manage properties. Which goes back to making sure you're using automation and software to make your job easier so that you can focus on, you know, building relationships and also, you know, being on top of the regulations that go on. That's right. Is it going to become like a job to stay on top of all the changes that are happening? Because, you know, depending on the market in Bay Area, you make a mistake as a property manager, it can be expensive put you out of business. That's right. Yeah. That's right. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing the industry today? So you mean like the single family industry or like yeah. more specific to, to property management? Single family, but property management or just in real estate, whatever. We're, well, people listen here are single family property managers. So if you see, if you see anything that can, see anything that, that's facing the industry, our property management single family space today? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, problems and opportunities are like two sides of the same coin, right? And so I think, I mean, look, property management is just, it's a hard, noisy, oftentimes adversarial business. It's just like a, it's a hard intersection. It's a hard job to manage a lease between two emotionally charged stakeholders an investor who may have their life savings in a property and a renter who's you know it's their home and like everyone cares a lot about their own particular agenda and a lot of the things that they're you know going back and forth on are somewhat a zero-sum game right like someone's gotta you know there was damage to a property who's going to pay for it, the owner of the property or the renter. It's like someone wins, someone loses. And I just well, think some, like- And some owners think the property manager should pay. <laughs> right. Well, then there's that. Like, but, but like either way, we do, you know, we as a property manager, you know, try to do our job. Someone's happy and someone's pissed always. So like, mm. it's just noisy. And so- to me, what makes the most sense, and I think one of the biggest structural challenges is that like, if you think of the whole investment business and all the different services that an investor needs, you know, a broker to find the property and maybe the market, mortgage broker to help you with financing, an insurance broker to sell you appropriate insurance, and then a property manager to manage it. I mean, these should not be you know, companies that are not connected, like right now it's very fragmented and you go to a broker who's just, they're just trying to make a fee. And so they like say, oh, sure, you can rent it for, you know, $1,500 a month. And then, you know, you hand it off to the property manager and the property manager is like, you're not going to get $1,500 a month for this property. You know, maybe it's $1,300, $1,200. Well, now all of a sudden immediately, the investor doesn't trust the property manager because, oh, you're just trying to say a lower rent to make your job easier. And, you know, what we're trying to set up at Mind is to have all those services within one company and have all of the predictions or pro forma estimates based on real actual data. So you don't have a situation where the broker saying one thing, the property manager saying the other the insurance agent is off trying to earn a fee and telling you some amount of, you know, maybe they're trying to sell you too much insurance, or maybe they're just trying to sell you the lowest price, but not enough insurance. And it's so fragmented. And I think if, you know, any way that someone who's on the property management side can be more aligned 
with you know the brokerage side or open your own brokerage business financing make it a one-stop shop that's what most investors want they want it to be an easy experience but i think more importantly all those services should be connected and the fact that it's not in most cases i think creates a lot of noise and the opportunity is to somehow bring those together such that it's more of a connected experience and expectations can be better set and decisions and predictions can be made with real data because, you know, there's more connectivity between the brokerage side and the property management side, et cetera. Like that. Is mine still purchasing property management companies? If, if not, or if so, what is mine doing to grow their business? We have not purchased a company since 2019. Now, that's not to say we're not or we won't. We're just a lot more opportunistic around kind of the right types of situations that make sense for us. I mean, one of the challenging things I think with buying a company is that basically, you know, what you're what you're buying are contracts with the investors that own the properties. And the problem is that you're doing a deal with the owner of the company and not the investor. And so you end up in these scenarios where the investor is like, I didn't hire you. Like, I maybe don't like the way you manage. I mean, we're, we manage in a very tech enabled way. And, you know, that can work for, there's a lot of investors that that works for, but there's some that it doesn't work for. And it's hard for us to know. And so we brought over someone who led growth at a company called Shift. So they're like a company that's bringing technology to bear in the used car business. So he actually didn't know anything about real estate investing or property management. He's a a growth expert and we've been doing very well. I mean, I think in just the month of December, we bought, brought on like 500 new doors. This is basically just going direct to investors. So investors hire mine directly and they know exactly, you know, how we manage, what our style is. And we just find that that's a, a better fit. We can acquire the cut, the customers for less and that they're just more likely to um, have a better experience because they, they want and expect what we're going to deliver. So that's mostly how we're focused, but you know, Look, if if there's an interesting portfolio and we feel like there's alignment with the owner of the company, you know, we have conversations and are open to seeing if something can make sense. How many how many markets are you guys in now? We're in 25 different markets. We manage about it's 12, a little bit over 12,000 doors right now. And we're, we're rapidly increasing our, our buying. So we buy for retail investors, we buy for institutional investors, and we're hoping to be on a, a pace of buying in excess of, you know, getting up into the hundreds of homes per month that we're, that we're buying, which is another way to basically, you know, grow the portfolio instead of just bringing on existing right. inventory. Are you using the Waypoint method to do that? Or are you using a different method where they just buy the houses themselves? No, it's more akin to the way we did things at Waypoint. It's not exactly. We're building, I think, better technology, but the methodology is the same in terms of ingesting data from iBuyers, from the MLS, look, you know, kind of having a structured way of looking at every property, estimating construction costs, estimating rents, and making lots and lots of offers across many, many markets. And you know, using technology to streamline the process as much as possible. We have acquisitions associates, you know, an army of them that are people that are, you know, making the estimates and, you know, making the offers. I know right before I left and part of ways with Mind, we had, Mind actually had a partnership with a couple of institutions and you, we started managing properties for institutionals. Is you guys still, is, is that working out and you guys still doing that as a way to, to, uh, to grow the business? Yeah. I mean, I think we've added about 3,500 homes in the last year from institutional clients. So we have, I think, eight different institutions that we manage on behalf of. 
In your book, you mentioned more than a few times about vision, having a purpose, and core values. Can you tell me why this is so important to you when you're building a business? Yeah, because I think, you know, most businesses are really teams of people, right? It's a group of people that have, you know, a mission, a common goal, hopefully a, you know, common and productive culture, you know, kind of the rules of, of engagement of, of the group. And so I think it's just very, it's very hard to operate. And I would say, you know, the real opportunity with a team is to find that one plus one equals three magic where the whole is, where the sum of the parts is greater than the than the than the whole where you're getting more productivity out of the group than you could over out of you know the individuals if they were working alone and there's an art to that and it's really I think by creating a, a strong vibrant culture having you know a vision that people can really buy in into it gets people excited and they want to work together and they want to work hard and they're passionate about what they're doing and you know that group is a lot more likely to be successful than, you know, a group that can't find that one plus one equals three magic. Do you have any, any tips that you can give our listeners on how you find those, those right people or how you actually create core values? You know, I think a lot of times it's like, what does the founder believe in? You know, what do the, I mean, and actually I'd like at mind, it was our founding team. Like, I didn't come up with the values. Like as a team, we sat down, I said, Hey, what's important to you guys in a company that you work with? Like in this industry, what are some things that need to, to happen? So for example, one of our core values is think like an investor. You know, the more that our team can empathize and understand what it's like to be an investor and put your whole life savings into a piece of property that you have these expectations, I mean, the truth is a very small percent actually own property, but we have a, a program at mind to help our employees buy a property. So Pete, buddy, you missed out on, on this one, but if you stay <laughs> at mind now for four years, we're going to give you cash in that year fifth to help you with the down payment to buy an investment property. So you can learn how to be an investor while you're with mind and then actually become an investor. So think like an investor. Like we think that's a very, very important value in the business that we're in. It also, it attracts talent. You know, people understand that real estate's a great asset class, but they don't know how to get started. So it's like, Hey, I get to come to mind. I'm more likely to stay at mind because I want to, you know, learn how to invest in real estate and, so that that's helped us a lot, bring on the right talent and then get people, I think, focused in the right way for us to be successful. I always find it amazing how many realtors I meet that don't have an investment property and how many property managers and property manager company uh, I know. that don't have any investment property. And I'm like, it's crazy. It's like you're in it every day. You know a lot about it. Real estate is the the best investment asset class there is out there on a risk adjusted basis. If you want to have me back for another show, we can talk for the entire time about why real estate is such a great investment. But yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, yes, if anyone out there is listening and you're in this business, you should be trying to figure out how to become an investor yourself. Agreed. All right. Thanks though. We're going to be right back. We'll take a quick commercial and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to go hit you with the lightning round. So stay right. tuned. We'll be right back, everybody. Did you know that most tenants struggle to come up with a large sum of money needed to move into their new rental home? Let Renters Insurance Solutions help you solve this problem by giving tenants another option for security deposits. Property managers can make up to $200 per door annually with our programs. Learn more at our website, yourris.com. That's Y-O-U-R-R-I-S.com. Renters Insurance Solutions your experts in property management and insurance. Have you ever considered hiring a property management virtual assistant, but didn't know where to start? Or have you tried hiring a virtual assistant, but you weren't satisfied with the number of qualified applicants? If so, VPM Solutions is here to help. VPM is the world's first virtual talent marketplace dedicated specifically to property management and real estate. 
we have thousands of talented virtual assistants ready to work for you, including assistance for accounting, leasing, maintenance coordination, rent collections, and much more. With VPM, you can post jobs, screen candidates, hire and pay your virtual assistants, all from within our state-of-the-art platform. VPM is the easy button for hiring and managing your virtual team. And the best part? VPM Solutions is 100% free to employers. That's right, free. No placement fees, no employer markups, and no hidden charges. With VPM, property managers get the talent they need while reducing costs and improving customer service. Visit vpmsolutions.com and create your free account today. PestShare, a pest control amenity for your resident benefits program, starting at just $5 per door. You can give your residents the pest control coverage they need. PestShare will even pay for the expensive infestations like bedbugs and cockroaches. And the debate over who pays for pest control, while PestShare turns an expense into added revenue. For more information, check out their website at pestshare.com forward slash property managers. All right, welcome back, everybody. And Doug, thanks for sticking around for the, the lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, one word or one sentence answers. You don't have to think too deep on these, although some of them might get you to, to uh, spark, spark a little conversation. So what is one accomplishment or something unique about you that most people don't know? I, so I went to college at UC Berkeley, and I was elected to the Senate. I was a, a senator at UC Berkeley for two weeks. And, and they the got impeached? <laughs> no, no it was so horrible. All the like just bureaucracy. I just wanted to like shoot myself and I, and I quit. But I did it for like, but I got elected and my campaign was to bring beer back to Memorial Stadium. Like Memorial Stadium is where we played football and there's no beer. And I said, I'm going to bring beer back. Shocker. I got elected. <laughs> that is classic. What do you prefer, Marvel or DC? You know what? I got asked the same question yesterday. No way. Like, I don't even. What I said yesterday is like, what are you talking about? I don't. I, I don't. I don't do cartoons. I don't know cartoons, so I don't. Don't watch any of the movies, huh? No. All right. I don't well, even know what I'm, DC. I'm a, I'm a DC <laughs> Comics Batman. Superman? Uh, no? Okay. I, I All right. I'm going to let him out of this one, folks. Yeah. What is one piece of advice you would give someone just starting out in the PM business? Create a plan to own property yourself. I like that. It's a great one. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes. Hawaiian style is like my favorite kind of pizza. Ham, pineapple, mushroom. What book are you reading? Not writing. What book are you reading or one that has impacted your life? Oh, you're going to just, um, what did I just, I'd have to go upstairs and, and, and look at the name of the book, the magic store, it's called the magic store. And I saw the guy speak and it's a, it's a heart surgeon who writes about life like what like just his perspective like he saw life and death in a way that few others see and it's just it's it's, it's about like why we're alive like what's important sounds pretty like cool. yeah it sounds pretty deep i yeah. i thought you were gonna go with your your buddy Vern harnish right i mean isn't he like <laughs> wasn't he one of your coaches he's got a couple yeah, of books yeah he's got some good books out there but yeah. um yeah not not a real estate book. All right. Well, I'm scared to ask this question, but I'm asking anyway. What Disney character do you most associate with? You know Disney, right? You've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard of Disney. I, I golly, Kara. So, see, folks, like Doug, Doug ponders much higher things like life and stuff. He doesn't ponder stuff about DC <laughs> characters. And this is not <laughs> probably what you're expecting, but you know, there's a, a roller coaster at Disneyland called Thunder Mountain Railroad. And I actually, I was in Utah two weeks ago for spring break and there's a mountain bike ride called Thunder Mountain Trail. And it's like got these just crazy formations that 
they have on the roller coaster. And so it's not a character, but like very hey, at this point, I'll get anything I can get out of you, Doug, about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the Narpum Radio podcast, what is another podcast that you that you recommend or you listen to? I listen to those Rich Roll podcasts. I don't know. If oh, yeah, I like, I like him. Yeah, Rich Roll. Mm-hmm. He was, an, er- he was an early adopter on podcasting. Yeah, or Tim Ferriss. Like, I must, like, I like to think of myself as a student of the game. And so it's really interesting to me to hear really successful people who are a student of their game and just like, what did they do? How do they think about being amazing at what they do because I find I can borrow ideas to be better at what I do. And we talked a little bit about this, but do you have a business coach? I do. Always. 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 Like everybody needs a coach. If, if I ever don't have a coach, I should just retire. Oh, this comes from a guy who spent how many years in the NFL? 12 years, 14 years? 12 years in the NFL. Yep. Yeah. Everybody, everybody needs to can learn and improve. And to me, growth mindset is like the reason for living. Yeah. Which you prefer, cats or dogs? I prefer dogs. All right. All right, Doug, if somebody wants to buy the book or get in touch with you, what's the best way they can go about getting that book? Amazon. Barnes and Noble, like any, just, you know, Google it and you'll find easy ways to, to purchase it. Look, I think if you're interested in real estate, kind of learning more about what happened during the foreclosure crisis, how to think about investing, how to think about building a business, you'll learn things, hear stories that you would find hopefully useful and and send us feedback. Like we have a website, the big long Dot com people laugh like i bought the website the big long like, <laughs> literally like no like 10 years ago and i said one day i'm going to write a book about this it's going to be called the big long and i bought the url so you oh, can wow. go to the url the big long and send us an email and you had to buy for some porno site or something <laughs> the big long. <laughs> that has come up as a joke but no well i can not, i can say we're not selling to the porn industry yet I can say if you're in the real estate industry, especially property management, I thought the book was an easy read. I actually consumed it in a couple of days. Like it was, it was one like that. I just really thoroughly enjoyed your stories, especially the early days were fantastic. You got a couple where you hired some kids out of, uh, out of college that they had to stay overnight in, in one of the houses because they kept getting vandalized. Cal I mean, football players. Yep. <laughs> like literally these guys are like, 270 pounds <laughs> if anyone was going to try to squat in that house yeah perfect and uh if you so uh go to the you can look on amazon it's called the big long and brian's last name is b-r-i-e-n doug brian and uh, if you want to join narpum go to narpum.org n-a-r-p-m.org call them at 800-782-3452 Three four five two, and if you're interested in virtual team members, go to VPM Virtual Property Management VPMSolutions.com, or you can email me at Pete at VPMSolutions.com. Doug, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, Pete, happy to be here. Great to chat with you again. Glad that VPM is going so well. Thanks. This has been a production of the National Association of Residential Property Managers, the recognized leader in property management, along with your host, Pete Newbig, CEO of VPM Solutions, where property management meets global talent. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the host and are not necessarily those of NARPM. If you have a hot topic you'd like discussed on the podcast, please email us at radio at narpum.org. 